Well, good morning once again. Good to see everybody. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Galatians chapter 3. Let me say it again for the sake of the new folks. We are studying the book of Galatians here at Calvary on Sunday mornings. Not doing it verse by verse, which we normally would do. But we've decided to uh, study it topically based on its main theme. The main theme of Galatians is liberty. The liberty or freedom that is ours in Christ. Now, the book divides itself into three main areas of liberty that Paul brings up in this epistle. Liberty from lies, liberty from law, and then liberty for life. And in our study, we've entered into the second major section, liberty from law, which is uh, the largest of the three uh, by far. It's really liberty from religion or legalism as a way to be made righteous in God's eyes. Under this uh, heading, Liberty from Law, we've already looked at the testimony of Paul, the transgression of Peter, and the treachery of false prophets. And that brought us last week to the fourth point, the truth of the gospel. Let me back up to verse 1, though, where Paul said, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? Uh, as we have said, the first century Greco-Roman world was loaded with paganism, which meant that everywhere Paul went proclaiming the gospel, he was dealing with demonic lies and spiritual attacks. Now, one of the lies that Paul dealt with in his missionary journeys, in fact, the one he's dealing with right here in the letter to the Galatians was the lie of the Judaizers, which is legalism. And again, for the sake of the new folks, the Judaizers were Jews, uh, mostly Pharisees, who would follow Paul around. So after Paul would come into an area like Galatia, which was a region, not a, a city, after he would preach the gospel there, he would move on to preach in other places. And as he moved on, the Judaizers would come in behind him and try to undo what Paul had uh, taught them. And primarily they believed that Gentiles couldn't be saved unless they became Jews first, which meant they had to be circumcised, keep the law of Moses, then they could exercise faith in Christ and become Christians or saved. And if they were Jewish, well, they had to keep observing the Jewish feast days and, uh, and laws and so on, keep practicing the Jewish uh, tenets, the tenets of Judaism, and then they could exercise faith in Jesus and be saved as well. So guys, the Judaizers were going around telling people that salvation was a mixture of Judaism and Christianity. Christianity supplanted Judaism. The New Covenant took precedence over the Old. Uh, the Judaism was the root, and Christianity was the fruit. That's why we talk about Judeo-Christianity. They're connected, but they're not equal. They're not both around at the same time. And the Judaizers wouldn't let go of Judaism. And so what they did was they embraced both. They thought they were Christians, and they thought the only way to be saved was to practice a mixture of Judaism and Christianity, of law and grace, of works plus faith. And the sad thing about it was, after Paul had spent so much time in Galatia teaching them the true gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of grace, many in the churches of Galatia were listening to the Judaizers' lies. That's what really uh, exasperated Paul. And therefore, he fires them off a letter in an attempt to reason with them, to challenge them, really, to think through the Judaizers' false doctrine to its logical conclusion. Um, he's trying to reason with them. Look at verse 2. 
This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? Verse 5. Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? He's reasoning with them. Think about this. When I came into your area and I preached the gospel to you, I didn't put you under the law. I didn't tell you you had to do anything, be circumcised, keep ceremonies and rituals and anything else. I preached you the gospel. You received it. The Holy Spirit came inside you. You became new creations. And now God's confirming that you have the right gospel and are born again. He's doing miracles among you guys. Did he do that by the works of the law or simply by the hearing of faith? Think about what you're buying into. You're being deceived by these people. Yeah, they were scholars, many of them. Uh, no doubt they um, uh, were doctors of the law. And that intimidates people. Well, they must know what they're talking about. They got a PhD, which could mean phenomenally dumb. <laughs> Don't be swayed by that. But anyways, the real issue, guys, that Paul is dealing with, the bottom line, he's dealing with how a person is made right with God. How, how do they get saved and are guaranteed a place in, in heaven someday? Is it by law or is it by grace? Is it by Judaism or is it by God's new covenant, Christianity, where you exercise faith in Christ and by his grace you're saved, right? So Paul knows that he needs to bring out the big guns now, the big guns. And so at this point he goes all the way back to the father of the Jewish people, their hero the uh, patriarch of the nation of Israel, Father Abraham. Let me read verse 5 again. Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now guys, it could be that the Judaizers were using their hero, Abraham, to prove their argument that even though Abraham believed he was still circumcised. And that proved that the Gentiles needed to do both also. They need, if they want to be saved, because Abraham, they have to believe and be circumcised. Now, Paul hits that heresy pretty hard in Galatians 3 and Romans 4. But before we look at that, I want to look for a moment at the statement, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. The concept that Abraham was declared righteous, saved, by simply believing God is, listen, so important to the Christian faith that it's repeated four times in the New Testament. Three times by Paul, once by James. That statement first appears in Genesis 15, verse 6. Turn to Genesis 15. That statement first appears in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. The backstory is Genesis 14, which I'll have you read on your own. But I just want to pick it up in verse 1 of Genesis 15. After these things, the things of chapter 14, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. But Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless? And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Then Abram said, Look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. Now, I have to understand the cultural context. 
In that culture, if a man had no children, his oldest servant born in his house, which in this case was Eliezer, would become his heir. Now, that was not ideal, because Jewish culture, they, if they didn't have children, was a great tragedy. That's the mindset. They wanted to pass on the name, pass on the inheritance to the kids. And uh, a man that did not have an heir from his own body, a, a child of his own, then the oldest uh, heir in his house, excuse me, oldest servant in his house will be the heir. And Abraham is saying to the Lord, basically, Lord, you know, you've blessed me, thank you, but how can I really enjoy all these blessings? You haven't, you haven't given me a child I can pass them all down to. That's what he's saying. Now, guys, you see, God had promised Abram back in Genesis 13, verse 16, that his descendants would be as numerous as the dust of the earth. In other words, you know, innumerable. But as chapter 15 opens, Sarah and he were still childless. Uh, let me say this. God first promised Abram children back in Genesis 12, verse 2. That was when he was 75 years old. Now, here in Genesis 15, he's 83. And still, God hasn't fulfilled his promise to give Abram a son. Now, at this point, we might be prone to think Abram's faith is failing. Uh, he's doubting that God's ever going to fulfill his promise, right? I mean, it sounds like that as you read the text, that he's beginning to doubt God's promise to him that uh, maybe he'll never have a son. Maybe he'll never have those descendants that are innumerable. We might be prone to think that if Paul hadn't told us otherwise. You don't have to turn to it, but Romans 4, verses 20 and 21, says he, Abraham, did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully convinced that what he had promised he was also able to perform. You see, in Genesis 15, verses 2 and 3, what seems like doubt is just a sincere desire to understand God's promise in a deeper way. Guys, a person can ask God a question in one of two ways. In a defiant, accusatory way, why God? Why? As they shake their fist in God's face, why did you let that happen? And so on. Or in a sincere way that simply says, Lord, I, I don't understand why you allowed this to happen, but I want to understand you better. I want to understand your ways. Please help me. I believe that Abram's question was the latter of the two. He, he wasn't accusing God of lying or breaking his promise. He was just asking God for some deeper insight into his plan for his, Abram's, life. How did God handle Abram's question? You ever notice how that God never defends himself? He doesn't have to. He's God. He's always right. And his word is infallible. If anyone is wrong, it's us, right? Not so, Lord. You made a mistake, Lord. This will never happen to you. You're not going to go to the cross. Not so, Lord. Get behind me, Satan. You're not mindful of the things of God. You're mindful of the things of this life. And that's how we often do it. We, we get our eyes on the earth and on this life, and we try to reason from our perspective or vantage point and often we get things wrong, uh, terribly wrong at times. And we use that to misjudge God. Uh, how dare we, really? How dare we? He's perfect. So when Abraham said in a kind and respectful way, Lord, I don't understand. I'm trying to understand. You made me a promise. 
What's going on? I'm not getting any younger, Lord. But God didn't defend himself. He simply repeated his promise to Abram once again. Verse 4. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one shall not be your heir, not Eliezer, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. I promise you this, Abram. Remember. Why did God repeat his promise to Abram again? Because God wanted Abram to know that nothing he had promised him had changed. The promise was still valid. You know, for everything there is a season. A time for every purpose under heaven. Yeah, I, I find a lot of common ground with David. Answer me speedily, O Lord. But God says, in my time. I'll make everything perfect in my time. Trust me. The promise was still valid. This is important that we understand. God's unconditional promises don't have a shelf life or an expiration date. And what I mean by that is that you, you might have heard the gospel when you were five in Sunday school or Awanas or some summer camp. And now you're 85. And you're starting to think about the end of your life. And you're wondering, that promise that I heard so many years ago, that if I accepted Jesus in my heart, he would, he would forgive me. He would come in and take over. Is that still valid? Of course it's still valid. God's promises don't have a shelf life or an expiration date. And don't miss this, they also do not have a forfeiture clause attached to them. When you put your faith in Jesus, you entered into an unconditional promise based on his faithfulness, not yours. I'm not advocating living an unfaithful life. I'm just saying we're all going to blow it. Probably all of us are going to backslide. And right there, when you do, the devil's right there to condemn you to say you forfeited your salvation. You're done. He's through with you. You need to understand. When God makes you an unconditional promise, and that's what salvation through Christ is, it's an unconditional covenant. You may not always live up to your life as a Christian the way you want. I know I don't. But you'll never forfeit that promise because Jesus said, once I know you, once I'm in you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. You can walk a million miles away from me. But if you decide you're going to repent, which means to turn around, start trying to make your way back, you don't have to walk a million miles. You turn around as you repent, he's right there. Saying, okay, let's pick up our relationship from where we left off. And you go right ahead. Genesis 15, verse 5. God reaffirms his promise to Abraham. Then he takes him outside. He brought him outside and said to Abram, Look now toward heaven. You know, it's interesting how in Scripture God is always trying to get us to look up. You ever notice that? I'll give you a couple of examples. There's dozens. Genesis 13, verse 14. And the Lord said to Abram, Lift your eyes now and look. The psalmist said in Psalm 3, verse 3, But you, O Lord, are a shield for me, my glory, and the one who lifts up my head. Why does God want us to look up? Two reasons. First of all, he wants us to get our eyes off the problem, off the circumstance, and get our eyes on him. I love that psalm, where you imagine him taking you by the chin. You're all dejected. Your head's hanging down. He takes you by the chin, and he just lifts you up, so that your eyes meet his. Remember me. 
I love you. I'm never going to leave you. I know it's hard right now. you got to just draw close to me, whatever you're going through, right? But God, first of all, wants us to get our eyes off the circumstances, off the problems, and get our eyes on Him. Because when we have our eyes on Him, we are able to do what most people would consider impossible. Like Peter walking on the Sea of Galilee. As long as he kept his eyes on Jesus, in the midst of the storm, he was able to do the impossible. The minute he got his eyes off the Lord, began to look at his circumstances, he began to sink. We have to rem- That's a very powerful story. We have to take to heart every single day. But secondly, he wants us to look up so that our eyes are always focused on the eternal. Because that is the proper perspective of life for a child of God. We have to cultivate a mindset that looks at this life from heaven's perspective, not from earth's. Because this life is going to pass away, but eternity is forever. And we have to realize that there are times when we are going to want to look at life from earth's perspective. But that's always a problem in the long run. Always a problem. We have to look at this life from heaven's perspective. That's why Paul said he has seated us in heavenly places because that's the proper vantage point you get a much better view of a city from the penthouse than you do the garden apartment much better view it's panoramic you are able to take it a whole bunch more the same is true in heaven and this life you know somebody has said the psychologist says look in the opportunist says look around the optimist says look ahead the pessimist says look out but god says look up as in set your mind on things above not on things on the earth genesis 15 verse 5 then he brought him outside and said look now toward heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them and he said to him so shall your descendants be this is interesting the Hebrew word translated descendants, plural, is actually seed, singular. The only translation that I've looked at, and there's others I haven't, but the only one that I've looked at that actually translated it, seed, was the King James Version. All the other versions, including the New King James, translates it descendants, plural, not seed, singular. And the reason the translators have kind of used both descendants or seed is because it has a dual application and they're trying to be faithful to the application they believe should be emphasized the most yes god is telling abram that he would eventually have many physical descendants which is why why god eventually renamed abram abraham which means the father of a multitude but you see the deeper interpretation is that god was promising abram that messiah would come from him one particular descendant or seed. Now, we're on solid ground with that interpretation because we're not guessing. Paul tells us that in Galatians 3.16. Now, to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds, plural, as of many, but as of one, and to your seed, who is Christ. Now, based on that, If I was a translator, I would have translated that, not descendants, but seed. Because Paul, if Paul hadn't said this, then I could understand. But they were trying to be be, uh, 
faithful to the uh, immediate application that Abraham was going to have a lot of kids. All right? But now we know the bigger picture because it's very important uh, doctrinally that we understand what Paul is saying here. And he's saying in the Bible's teaching that through this Messiah, many would become descendants of Abram and children of God through faith. Got to understand, the Bible says Abraham was the father of those who have faith. And the Bible tells us that really the children of Abraham are all those who believe like Abraham in God's coming Messiah, his promises. They become the children of Abraham, you might say, and the part of the family of God. But yes, Abraham was going to have many physical descendants as well. And Paul is telling us in Galatians 3 and in other places that through Jesus, Abraham's descendants will go far beyond the Jewish people. Far beyond the Jewish people. That all who believe in Jesus, the Messiah of all mankind, Genesis 12, 3, would be spiritual children of Abraham by faith and members of the family of God made up of people, listen, from all the families on the face of the earth. We see them gathered in Revelation around the throne of God, chapter 5. People from every tribe and tongue and nation and kindred all worshiping the Lord. When we get to heaven, people from every family on the face of the earth is going to be represented. That's a, a blessing because God is no respecter of persons. He wants all to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Genesis 15, verse 6. And he believed in the Lord and he accounted it to him for righteousness. Again, guys, this verse is without a doubt one of the greatest in the Bible, for it lays the foundation for the greatest doctrine of the Christian faith, justification by faith apart from works. In fact, all of Romans 4 is really an exposition of Genesis 15, verse 6. That's how important this verse is, this idea, which we'll be studying soon in our Roman study on Wednesday night. I'm trying very hard not to duplicate studies, so I had to really pick and choose Sorry, some of it's going to overlap. And we just happen to be in Galatians at the same place where Paul is dealing with the same issues. We're going to be in Romans in a couple of weeks, Romans 4. Um, I got you in Genesis. Turn over to Romans chapter 4. In Romans 4, Paul quotes Genesis 15, verse 6. He says, For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Uh, I cannot stress enough how important this concept is. The word accounted in Romans 4 verse 3 is the Greek word legizomai. That word is so important to Paul's argument in Romans 4, he uses it 11 times in this one chapter. That's how important a concept it is. Translated counted in verse 4, accounted in Romans 4, verses 9, 10, and 22, and imputed in chapter 4, verses 6, 8, 11, 23, and 24. It's a banking term that literally means to put to one's account. To put to one's account. We live in the digital age where money is transferred from one account to another digitally. It's actual physical money. doesn't change hands, right? We can transfer money from one person's account to another. If you have kids in college, you know this concept very well. <laughs> Again, we're talking about money, and it's transferred from one account to the other through, uh, through the Internet. 
When you talk about righteousness, it's, it's transferred from Jesus' account to our account through faith. Through faith. And guys, this becomes the crux of Paul's argument. Not to mention the foundation upon which salvation is built. That the righteousness that comes from God is imputed to our account by faith. It's not earned. And Paul talks about this in verse 4. Now to him who works... The wages are not counted as grace. Grace means a gift, but as debt. And Paul is giving a simple illustration. He says when a man works, he earns a salary, or he earns his pay. In other words, his employer owes that man a debt. Now, the employer at the end of the week doesn't hand his employee a check and say to him, here's a gift. Try that if you're a boss. See how that goes over. What do you mean a gift? I earned this. I worked for this. No gift. But if a man couldn't work for any reason, of course, I'm thinking of the days in which Paul lived. There was no uh, you know, sick pay. If you didn't work, you didn't get paid. But say you lived back then, and you couldn't work. You were hurt, laid up, and a boss, your boss came and handed you some money and said, look, I know you haven't been working, but I want to help you. That would be a true gift, right? You didn't earn it. You didn't really deserve it. But out of the goodness of his heart, he gave it to you freely. Guys, Abraham did not work for his salvation. He simply believed the promise of God. The Hebrew word translated believed means to say amen. In the Hebrew, uh, amen means truly. It's a declaration of faith. God says something in his word, and we say amen. Truly, we believe it by faith. That's the idea. God gave a promise. Abraham responded with amen, truly, a pronouncement of faith, and God declared him righteous. Paul's point is that Abram wasn't declared righteous because he kept the law. The law would not be given for another 430 years when Moses came on the scene. It just says God promised, Abram believed, God declared him righteous, saved. Abraham didn't work for his salvation. He just simply trusted God's word, God's promise. That's Paul's point. That's what he's trying to drive home here. It was Jesus Christ who did the work of redemption on the cross. And his righteousness was put, listen, to Abraham's account because of Abraham's faith. You say, wait a minute. Jesus wasn't going to die for another 2,000 years. How, how can Jesus' righteousness, which he had not died yet, be imputed to Abraham's account? Because uh, Revelation 13, verse 8 says that Jesus Christ was a lamb slain before the foundation of the world. Before God ever made the world, he knew we were going to mess up. We were going to blow it. He already had the plan of salvation in mind. And he, in the mind of God, Jesus was already on the cross of Calvary, dying for our sins. So that when he made promises of this coming Messiah, this Redeemer, people that believed in the promises and the, the reality was yet future, God accounted it to them, their faith for righteousness. He put what Jesus would wind up doing to their account, because God knows the future. He knows everything. He knew Jesus was going to die for our sins, right? Look at Romans. You're in Romans 4. Look at verse 5. But to him who does not work for his salvation, religion, but to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith, her faith, is accounted for righteousness. Jump down to verse 9. Does this blessedness then, Come upon the circumcised only, only on the Jews, or upon the uncircumcised also, the Gentiles. 
For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. How then was it accounted? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also, and the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but also walk in the steps of faith which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. Let me just say this. What he is saying is, is Abraham the father of the Jews only, the circumcised? Or is he the father of those who believe, which includes the Gentiles, those who are uncircumcised? And guys, here Paul seizes on a historical fact that most of us would never have noticed. We would have missed it. He informs us that Abraham was justified, Genesis 15, 6, 14 years before he was circumcised, Genesis 17, verse 24. Paul's point if the father of the nation of Israel could be justified while he was still uncircumcised, then the logical question arises, why can't other uncircumcised people be justified also? You see his logic? The Judaizers were telling the Gentiles that they had to be circumcised before they could be saved, just like Abraham. And Paul says, oh, really? May I remind you that God accounted Abraham's faith for righteousness 14 years before he was circumcised. Then why was circumcision given? Paul tells us. It was a sign of the covenant that God made with Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant. Guys, a sign is not the covenant. It simply points to the covenant. It's a symbol of the covenant. Like a wedding ring is not really marriage. It points to the marriage covenant. I'm not wearing my wedding ring today. I'm still married. Ask my wife. I wouldn't have it any other way, honey. I'm just making a point. <laughs> I'm just saying, though. You take your wedding ring off, you're still married. It's not the covenant. What is it? It's a beautiful sign of the covenant. That when people see you with your wedding ring on, they know that you have committed yourself to another person. You have entered into that very deep personal relationship we call marriage. It's a covenant that you've entered into uh, when you pledge to each other your love and loyalty. You've made vows to each other in the presence of God, and then a ring was placed on each of your fingers to symbolize that for everyone to see that you now belong to another. And Paul's conclusion is, if, conclusion is if Abraham was justified before he was circumcised, why can't he be the father of other uncircumcised people, that is, of the believing Gentiles? Of course he can. That's his point. Of course he can. I mean, his logic is pretty irrefutable. It's pretty rock solid. And don't forget this. Abraham was justified while he was still, listen, I don't want to confuse, while he was still on Gentile ground. What do you mean? Abraham was born a Gentile. He was singled out by God to be the father of a new nation. But he was justified while he was still technically a Gentile. And Paul is saying, look, if Abraham, our father, could be justified as a Gentile before he became the father of a new nation, the Jewish people, why can't other Gentiles be justified by their faith? Of course they can. That's his point. 
Look at Galatians 3 again. I want to read verses 7 and 9. I'm going to leave verse 8 for next week. It's quite a verse. Galatians 3, verse 7. Therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. Verse 9. So then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. Now, Paul, as a rabbi, is going all the way back to Genesis chapter 12. To the promise that God first made to Abram. And he told him, in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. In other words, through Abraham, as we just said, Messiah would be born the Savior of all mankind. And through him, Messiah, Jesus Christ, all the families on earth would have access to salvation by faith apart from human works just like Abraham. Let me wind this down. What Paul is saying, and he's making a very obvious case, it's pretty rock solid. The rite of circumcision, which many Jews relied on for salvation, he said contributes nothing to a person standing before God. It gives them no special standing before him because they must be declared righteous on the basis of faith, just like their father, their hero, Abraham. Abraham believed and God pronounced him justified, saved before he was ever circumcised. Let's personalize this. The same applies to the rite of water baptism. The same applies to the rite of water baptism. It doesn't save those living under the new covenant. It's simply a sign of our faith in Jesus. There's a lot of people that believe you have to be baptized in water to be saved. They're no different than the Judaizers who believe you had to be circumcised the men. And then you can believe. So a lot of folks who believe water baptism is essential for salvation. And I would imagine if we got them here and talked to them, they would tell you, and they would, I'm convinced, would believe it with all their heart that we're saved by grace. It's just that they've elevated a, a, a right, R-I-T-E, to such a level of, they know it's an outward work, but it's so sanctified in their mind, so holy, so necessary for salvation, it doesn't count as a work, even though we have to do it. It doesn't count as a work. And I want you to understand something. That water baptism is a beautiful symbol of what Jesus Christ has done for us and what we are made a part of. We are, are placed in him when we get saved. We accept him, right? And what did Jesus do? He physically died on the cross. He was physically buried. And three days later, he physically rose from the dead. When I accept him as my Savior, I, I am placed in Christ, which means everything that happened to Jesus happens to me or has now happened to me. And that's what we like to take when we baptize people in water. We like to have them invite their friends and family. Last baptism, the place was full. Why do we do that? Because it's a symbol of, of a deeper reality. It's not the reality. Water baptism doesn't save us. Peter even said, what, in his second epistle, I think? No, first epistle. He said, water baptism now saves us. <gasps> you just said it didn't. But he goes on. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh. Not dipping somebody in water and washing a little dirt off their body. But of having a good conscience towards God by believing the resurrection. When you give your heart, when you believe Jesus Christ died for your sins and rose again. Didn't Paul say in Romans 10 that if you believe that you shall be saved? But when you believe Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins and rose from the dead bodily. And you receive him into your heart as your savior. 
you are baptized at that instant by the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ. It's a dry baptism. It's invisible. It's not immersion in water. We do that later to signify what happens spiritually. We, we dip you in water, signifies death and burial. We can bring you up out of the water, signifies a brand new life, your new creation in Christ. It's a beautiful symbol. It's not the reality. The thief on the cross didn't have time to be baptized, and he was saved. And, and, and I could give you other examples, but we don't have the time. But I just want you to understand that the bottom line is don't put your faith in a ritual of any kind, whether it's circumcision or communion or water baptism or any combination thereof as being necessary for salvation. Nothing we do outwardly in the way of going to church, reading our Bibles, helping the poor, evangelizing the lost, if you're a Roman Catholic, lighting the candles and praying the rosary, none of that or any other religious work will earn us God's favor and a place in heaven. Salvation is only by our faith in Jesus, period. Look at Galatians again, chapter 3, verses 7 and 9, as we wind this up. Uh, Therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. So then, those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. And guys, this, of course, was directed by Paul at the Judaizers, who put their faith in being descendants of Abraham and being circumcised. That was the big thing the rabbis taught. If you were a descendant of Abraham and were circumcised as a man, you were a shoo-in. You were guaranteed heaven. That was all that mattered. You could even be an unbelieving Jew. But Father Abraham stood outside the gates of hell to pluck any unbelieving Jew out of the line of those going in. Because that was all, bloodline and circumcision. That's that's all that was required. Let me read you what Paul said in Romans 2, verses 28 and 9. He said, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, as descendants of Abraham, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit, not in the letter of the law, is the idea, whose praise is not from men, but from God. Here's what Paul's saying. In the eyes of God, a true Jew is not one who has Abraham's blood in their veins and circumcision as the mark in their body. A true Jew is one who believes like Abraham. Paul makes it a point in another place. Abraham had two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. Only one was the son of promise. Only one was the son of faith. Ishmael had the blood of Abraham in his veins. He was circumcised, but he was a flat-out unbeliever. He was a pagan. And that's the idea. Those outward rituals, those things, don't, they don't mean anything. God isn't interested in outward rituals or anybody's bloodline, uh, nationality. God doesn't love the Jews more than he loves us Gentiles. He looks for true saving faith in the heart, by which he bestows salvation on that person and adopts them into the family of God as his child. It's all about the heart. It's about faith. I have you turn to one last scripture. We'll close. Turn to John 1. As John is setting up his gospel, this is the introduction still, but he's setting up his gospel to present the true Christ Jesus. And he starts to talk about Jesus. And John 1, verse 12. But as many as received him... To them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name. Listen. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Listen. John is telling us that becoming a born-again child of God is, first of all, not of blood. Not of blood. You don't become a Christian because your parents are Christians. 
or because you were born a Catholic or a Lutheran or a Baptist. It isn't something that's passed down through your bloodline like the Jews thought. Number two, it's not of the will of the flesh. In other words, your flesh. You don't become a Christian by sheer willpower. A lot of folks think that if they act like a Christian, they are a Christian. That's not biblical. You can't even really live like a Christian until you are born again of the Spirit and have the Spirit of God in you who gives you the power and strength to live for the Lord. There's a lot of folks out there who think that that by sheer willpower, by the will of the flesh, um, they just determine they're going to start living a Christian life, which will make them a Christian. Or they decide to punish themselves in some way. That'll make me a Christian. Every year at Easter time, the people of Mexico City whip themselves. They flagellate themselves until their backs are raw and bloody. Then they, they crawl for miles on their knees to a certain cathedral because they believe they, by doing this they're impressing God and earning a place in heaven. It's not by blood. It's not by the will of the flesh. And thirdly, it's not by the will of man. In other words, no one becomes a Christian because a man like a priest proclaims you a Christian because you fulfilled some religious duty or you received a, a sacrament like water baptism when you were an infant. The only way a person is born again, born of the Spirit, saved, is by believing in Jesus Christ. And do you notice what John said? As many as believed and received. I believed the years I was a Catholic. I never received Jesus as my Savior. I mean, he was holding out the gift of salvation. I believe he was the Savior. I just needed to receive it by faith and say, come in, be my Savior. Be my Lord. Now, guys, next week, I want to explore a little bit more before I move on. Because the Bible says Abraham believed God, and God accounted him for righteousness. What exactly did he believe? Several things it says that Abraham believed God for this, for that. What exactly did Abraham believe which caused God to declare him righteous? And by the way, what about verse 8? That Abraham had the gospel preached to him beforehand? When did Abraham have the gospel preached to him? You tell me Abraham knew the gospel? I'm not telling you that. Paul did. Paul's telling you that. How is that possible? That's a good question. I think we need to spend just a little time. Not probably the whole time. Not probably. But spend a little time looking at those two things. Um, so come on back. And we'll continue. God willing our study... Uh, and, and let me just say this as we close. Thank you for your patience. This is technical. This is not surfacey, feel-good stuff. you got to think. So a lot of people don't want to think today. They want to be entertained. They want to just made to feel good. I was telling first service. This morning, I was reading quickly my Christian news service, and the title, uh, the, uh, the heading came up. Uh, Mega church pastor trashes church sanctuary. Oh, i got to click on this. And there was a, a couple-minute video about this, this pastor. I, I forgot where, in the States somewhere, mega church, And I guess he had, had a problem with his weight. And um, he said, God spoke to me that I needed to start treating my temple of my body better. I mean, I was abusing it. And it was hindering my walk. And it was, okay, I get that. But to illustrate, what he did was he had his crew construct a living room, mock living room, on the stage of this megachurch, 
So to prove his point, at one point, he goes over and he takes a tablecloth off of this table, and there's all kinds of food on this table. And he picks up a couple plates of something. So I like Chinese food. He starts throwing these plates at this wall of this living room. And takes a bottle of something, I don't know, soy sauce, and starts squirting it everywhere. And everybody is like, you know, the whole, you know, people are loving it. It's outrageous. Look at it. Look at it. Only our pastor would do this. You know, he said, well, you wouldn't treat your house this way. Why are you treating the house of your body this You know, I get the point. You didn't have to build a whole message around it. I get it. Well, let's be honest. He's got a mega church because if he does that kind of stuff all the time, theatrics and stuff like that, I can see why people want to come because they like to be entertained. Well, what have, you, what have you given those people spiritually in the way of spiritual food that they're going to be able to take home and that week digest that will help them walk with the Lord? They had a good time. It was fun to see you walking around acting like a goofball, throwing food at, the, at, at the, your, your little living room of yours. I mean, people love it because it's outrageous and it's entertaining. But this is why there is so much biblical illiteracy in the body of Christ today. I told First Service, please don't misunderstand. I'm not happy about that. But in some way, it's almost like, Lord, guys like that tend to draw to themselves everybody who likes that kind of stuff. And what we're left with is serious-minded people who love the Word. They don't want goofiness they want to hear the word taught so thank you that you are those people that i can spend a, a little extra time on some of these things because they're so look it was so important to paul he devoted chapters in galatians and romans and other places because if you don't understand how you're saved you, the devil is going to have a field day with you if he can get you back under the law he can condemn you because you're never going to live up outwardly to the things that you and I, we want to do. He's going to say in Romans 7, the things I want to do that I don't always do, things I don't want to do, those things I do. Oh, wretched man that I am. But he went on in chapter 8 with a cry of victory. I'm more than a conqueror because my faith is in Jesus. It's not in the law. It's not in me. So thank you for your patience. And as God willing, we will work our way through more. It's a lot here. Every morning after my devotions, I turn to Galatians and reread these chapters. I want it fresh in my mind, and I want the Holy Spirit to keep revealing things to me that we need to understand. And so keep praying, all right? Let's pray now. Father, we thank you for your word, Lord. Give us grace to be men and women of the word. We live in a day when people want to be entertained. They don't want to think, they want to feel. And Lord, so many are biblically illiterate and they are just target practice for the devil. Give us grace that we would go deeper, that we would understand these truths, justification, righteousness, propitiation, things that are essential to our salvation. Give us grace that we would understand these basic theological concepts because they are foundational to our whole walk and our faith. We thank you. We ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word. We ask all this. In Jesus' precious name, amen.